When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Uh, that's Not Gunner Productions podcast. Okay, everybody, thank you for joining us again for another Therapy for Monsters. Today, we're doing something a little bit different, and we are doing a discussion episode, kind of like a case meeting, and we have the lovely Lydia joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself, uh, Lydia? Hello, everyone. My name is Lydia. I am a therapist and a huge Harry Potter fan um, and general nerd over many fictional characters and villains. I had the pleasure of working with Tim as well. <gasps> a pleasure to work with me here at first here. Um, it, it has been said. There you go. Uh, okay, so who are we discussing today? We will be discussing Voldemort. Voldemort. Okay. And where are we up to with Voldemort? Mm, that's a good question. So, so he's- <laughs> testing our memories. It really is. So he's had a few therapy sessions and have been exploring this theme of power. Um, And it seems like he has some attachment with power and a fear of not being in control. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we've done done a few with Voldemort now. So he's had his first session, then his second session, and then a group session or Mm. first session, group session, second session, third session. So like four mm-hmm. sessions so far. So he's uh, getting his money's worth, isn't he? Oh, yes. Yes, it seems like it. Always good when your, your clients keep coming in. So, so far, yeah. So he's got this need for control, which his power mm-hmm. gives him. And then we've kind of delved into some of the reasons why uh, he would have this need. Uh, and I guess the two big ones so far have been his past kind of trauma at having his father abandon him um Mm. and then that's because his father was a muggle and then that's kind of driven some of that Mm. hatred towards muggles and yeah really Mm. justifying that uh and then also being bullied by muggles as well uh and Mm. then yeah really finding that power is what he needs to kind of control everything and Mm. stop everything from hurting him Mm. yep definitely makes sense Voldemort never um had any sort of consistent attachment with his father or any kind of stability with that. So to have to have gone through an experience of abandonment like that, it makes sense that he would go on to um, become scared essentially of not having any sort of security or stability within his life. So it's natural for him to gravitate towards wanting power and control to try and get that sense of security. Okay, so yeah, you, you make a good point there. You, so basically, you're saying that without secure attachment, you, you don't have stability. And then a person really tries to, I guess, meet that need for stability in other ways. 
Yeah, yeah. And I, I actually believe that insecure attachment is at the heart of most psychological disorders and complex personality disorders as well that we see um so you find a lot with narcissism one theory is that insecure attachment drives that because um people never had um consistent loving attention from their primary caregiver they never had consistent nurturing so in order to compensate for that they grow up in life trying to um i guess they grow up with a sense of entitlement trying to take that nurturing um from other people to try and get their needs met and it develops as narcissism so I think in the case with Voldemort it's kind of similar he never really had that consistent care and even with his mom who was his primary caregiver she became quite depressed when Tom Riddle left her so she Mm. wasn't really able to kind of be fully available to Voldemort to raise him I thought Voldemort's mother died in childbirth oh wait did she <laughs> this is so embarrassing. Who broke? He was in an orphanage. That's right. Yeah. I'm thinking oh, Lydia, Lydia. My goodness, the disappointment. Oh my God, this is embarrassing. No, okay, yeah, no, but this makes even more sense. So he was raised in an orphanage. He was yeah. a pretty odd boy, right? Yeah, well, t- chatting to snakes and doing oh. little magic tricks, and all the other kids being like, "What the? What's with this guy?" Exactly. And um, I imagine that the staff there were quite scared of him. So no one really would have been there to try mm. and give him the warmth and nurturing that he needed. Yeah, so yeah. For part, it, it has manifested as this need for power and control. Yeah, it's interesting. So you were kind of saying stuff about narcissism, which kind of mm. came out quite quickly. And I'm still trying to like process what you said because <laughs> my brain is slower um so you were kind of making the point that am i hearing the point right that basically if you don't get the healthy attachment when you're younger and yeah. you yeah you, you don't get those needs for stability met um and you don't get those needs for nurturing and i guess all human needs that you get from yeah parental figures um you're saying it is a point that you're making that a narcissist will take those things when they're older rather than kind of like receiving those things like is it a, a what's the what's the difference there do you think um so what i'm trying to say is that with it's one theory of narcissism is that the behaviors they have is as a way to try to um compensate for um a lot of core beliefs that they might have about not having their needs met. So if they were young and they grew up with having a mother who was inconsistent with their availability, didn't always um, feed them or hug them or love them when they needed, Mm. then they're going to grow up with this idea that people around me are probably going to be inconsistent with being available to me. So I'm going to have to overcompensate by making sure that I make people, you know, available for me and I get them to meet my needs in whatever way I can. So it's one theory there of narcissism from that kind of attachment framework so over overcompensating and really trying to control those around you because it's like hey you know i can't have faith that you're going to meet my needs in a healthy way instead i've got to control you to make you meet my needs Exactly. And because mm-hmm. these beliefs likely developed you know, at an age when the person was, you know, one years old, two years old, still a child um, or a baby and barely able to kind of 
process and understand what's going on when their mum's not coming to them to feed them or hug them, um, the core beliefs that they have around this are going to operate on that subconscious level as well. So they're not okay. going to be aware that people around me are not going to help me to meet my needs. It, it's But the behaviours are going to be present. Yeah, so even if they're not conscious of the fact that, hey, you know, I am... Um, I am gaining power and doing all these horcruxes and, you know, finding the uh, elder wand or whatever. I'm doing all that to be able to control more, to be able to get more needs fulfilled, even though they're not conscious of the fact that, hey, I'm controlling more to get these needs fulfilled um, for the reason that, hey, I, I don't have faith that people will love me or care for me or view me as significant without it, um, they're still going to do it because I guess results speak, you know, for themselves, don't they? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Fear worked for Voldemort, making people scared of him in order for him to be able to control others worked for him. Mm. Um, It was hard for him to really know any other way given the childhood that he had. Yeah, what do you think about that? Uh, how, you know, a lot of the things that you know, clients do, which are really, really bad for them, um, work to some degree. What do you think about that? What do I think about the maladaptive coping styles or really unhelpful behaviours that they engage with? Yeah, and how that actually kind of works for them. Um, it solves one problem um, but causes others. Like what, what's been your experience? Um, I think that's definitely true. I think, you know, people don't act in really unhelpful ways for no reason. It's always there to kind of serve a purpose. And I think a lot of the time it's there to meet a need um, that they were never able to meet during childhood. Mm. Um, And oftentimes when, you know, they're, like you're saying, it helps in the short term, but in the long term it doesn't. And more often than not, when they're engaging in really unhelpful behaviours, it actually perpetuates this cycle that just keeps going on. Um, so, you know, perhaps in the case of Voldemort, for example, if we're saying that there's a need there for, um, unconditional love or acceptance for others that he was never able to get from his father, from the staff of the orphanage, from his mother who passed away, Mm. um, that he's going to try and make people come to him using fear, you know, um, actually tapping onto the, um, oh my God, why can't I think of it? The dark mark on his arm. Yeah, yeah. Um, summon people to come to him it works um Mm. and it's able to kind of um but he's never going to be able to develop you know perhaps the acceptance that he might have wanted when he was young yeah and i think it works the same with clients who are engaging you know in binge eating or substance abuse or self-harming it always takes away the temporary pain and always helps them to Mm. cope but it never really addresses what's underlying everything yeah yeah and i guess i guess with act it's all about you know how helpful is is what you're doing you know yes it might be getting rid of one problem but how helpful is it in terms of a bigger picture and that bigger picture of your values um if you and i guess when it comes to narcissism and when it comes to someone like voldemort you know if his value is genuine connection and genuine caring then yeah like it might 
get rid of some of that of that discomfort that comes with mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the in the moment feeling like uh, mm-hmm. you can't trust people to care for you but acting on those uh, acting to get rid of those uncomfortable feelings by using your power and um, brute mm-hmm. force um, to coerce people kind of wrecks your, your direction towards your values of that genuine mm-hmm. care and those genuine genuine relationships and uh, and I guess you'd see that a lot with uh, narcissistic clients as well you know you you they they have a relationship but that that's coerced and I guess in a way it's almost like how can you genuinely feel love and care in that relationship when you're controlling it like you're the puppet master it's it's almost like writing yourself a love note you know how meaningful is that you know it's yeah but there's so much fear there about not having um any relationship or having perhaps some core beliefs confirms that they're not going to be able to get a loving, accepting relationship. Mm. They're so scared about not having that, that they will settle for this coercive relationship. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting though. I do wonder what Voldemort's values might have been actually, if he was able to look past wanting control Mm. and power, what those values are. Well, what do you think they would be? Um, I, I would wonder security perhaps mm-hmm. yeah um just a feeling of safeness you know within himself mm-hmm. within relationships what do you think yeah well yeah so that security that safety um mm-hmm. and i guess the value is to gain that in a relationship so he, yeah. he values safe relationships, secure relationships, because he didn't have that growing up. He The first thing, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as he was born, well, the story goes, of course, like, um, what was it that his mother had put a curse on his father to yeah to force him to fall in love with her and then once she had Voldemort she thought okay well I think his love's genuine for me now um, and takes the curse off of him so he's no longer controlling the father by magic and then the father goes well screw this I'm out of here (laughs) which you you can't really blame him like if you had been yeah, it's a complicated situation. Um, and then so Voldemort's first thing that he experiences coming into this world is abandonment by a parent. Like it doesn't matter about the logic behind it or the unreasonableness of the father fleeing, but at the same time is still being abandoned. So there's going to be that, um, yeah, that loss and that, uh, yeah, definitely starting off a, a maladaptive kind of streak. And a lot of anger there naturally towards mm. his father for abandoning him, um, which I wonder we probably touched upon it. It has been projected onto all muggles as well. Yeah. Um, you can't make sense of that anger at such a young age. You know, you have such mixed feelings. You love your father because they're your father, but you're mm. angry because they left you. Um, it can be easy for those feelings to be projected onto, onto the wrong people. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and it just seemed to fit so well together that <laughs> abandonment from a muggle father and then him having this vendetta against muggles. And I don't know if like JK Rowling even kind of wrote it like that, but psychologically speaking, it makes oh, it all clicks together really well. And maybe she did intend that. Um, she, she's good at weaving things together, but um, yeah, it does fit, doesn't it? 
And I think um, the mother part as well, you know, I wonder if there's a bit of a genetic predisposition that Voldemort has um, for control and for feeling insecure, given mm. that mother herself had to, you know, get his dad to take a love potion so she could be with him because she felt that's insecure. Not cool. If if you do have a magic ability, you know, use it for good. Don't use it to sexually assault people. Um, you know, that public service announcement just there for all the wizards and witches watching, listening or, or watching. I guess they could if they're wizards. Anyway, um, so we have a mother who has obviously questionable mental health and ways of coping with things. We have her kind of passing on potentially that genetic makeup to her son and we have a son that's abandoned and left Mm. all alone Mm. Mm. with the only thing that has perhaps been consistent or safe for him is his sense of power that he has yeah yeah what i find really interesting and I find it a lot with, um, you know, real life examples of say things like domestic violence and stuff like that, mm-hmm. where for a person to be able to really use control and use power mm-hmm. and use manipulation, all that sort of stuff. Um, I always find that they do what Voldemort did in session as well, which is really play up himself as the victim. Um, yes it seems like there's yeah that cognitive dissonance going on where in order to be able to sleep at night, I've got to say that I, I, I've got to think in my head that I'm the victim. So then I, therefore I was justified in mm. killing muggles or hitting mm. my partner. And when you think about it, you know, to a large extent, Voldemort might believe he is a victim because as a child, um, he, he was in a situation as a victim. He had mm. his dad his mother died he was in an orphanage um where he was like most likely quite isolated from others so yeah. he was a victim then and he's not a victim anymore but perhaps that's never really changed for him um so the narrative of being a victim is something continues to perpetuate mm. as well. so what um okay so you've got this person that has this victim mentality this maladaptive way of coping uh this controlling behavior uh this need for power to be able to enable that control and that's this is like all abusers where you know they have to gain power in order to feel control and they'll gain power by isolating you or they'll gain power by you know uh emotionally beating you down or physically um and you know so they've gained this power they've gained this control so what approach do you have to somebody like that that does exactly what you just said where they justify by saying no actually i am the victim because like you said with Voldemort, actually a lot of his life he was the victim how would you work with a client like this? Yeah, when they're justifying it like that. I, I think you would really have to roll with that resistance. And even if they do perceive themselves to be a victim, you'd have to really explore how that's working for them. You really need to try and, and get them to acknowledge, you know, what's working for them, what's not, um, to build upon their motivation, mm. start to make them change. You know, even if he is a victim, if everything is outside of his control, then there's not really a lot that he can do to change the situation. Yeah, yeah. By taking responsibility and acknowledging, you know, the things that we've done that we can then start to see the choices that we have to try and make changes in our lives. 
That that's key, isn't it? So um, responsibility is like at the polar opposite end to you know victimhood. Victimhood is you saying you know I am not responsible at all. You know everything is someone else's fault. Therefore, what I'm doing is okay. Yes. So yeah. how do you get them to take responsibility? Mm, I feel I feel like an act um, approach would begin mm. to look at what their values are to try to get to the heart of what motivates them in life. And when you really start to identify that gap between where they are and what their values are, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I feel it doesn't really matter, you know, if, if it's the client's fault or someone else's fault or something, something you need to try mm. to motivate the client to get on board with that direction to move towards their values. Um, you know, I see this I, when I used to do work a lot in drug and alcohol counselling, you work a lot with clients who have um, been really abusing drugs and alcohol for many years in their life to cope with a lot of pain, with a lot of trauma, and it's fractured their relationships. It's led to their children being taken away. Um, and even though they see themselves as a victim of everything that's happened it doesn't seeing themselves that way isn't going to get their kids back and it's not going to get their families ah, back they're really trying a, to work with the family yeah and actually see that you know this is what you want you want your kids you want your family what can you do to try to get it back regardless yeah. of the victim card that might be there oh, i was going to use the same language that you use the the idea that look it doesn't at a point it doesn't matter so the logic that people use um, to be able to do whatever they're doing or justify whatever they're doing, the logic yeah. at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. And, you know, I know I found myself earlier on, um, well, not even earlier on, like years into practice and still finding myself almost arguing with clients where you're arguing with the logic and you're I still can get caught in that trap myself. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're, tr and in our minds, it's like, oh, you know, if I can just prove them wrong, then all of a sudden they'll be on board with, you know, something that I'm trying to sell them, you know, some better thing to do, some, uh, yeah, healthier thing to do. Um, but the logic doesn't really matter what, and this is why I really like act is because it doesn't actually, it doesn't give a crap about the logic. It literally is like, okay, what is your value? Okay. Your value is genuine relationships. Okay. Is what you're doing helpful? Yeah, not, not is what you're doing true. Not is what you're doing, you know, justified based on past victimhood, but is what you're doing actually helpful? It, yeah, I really like that explanation of ACT. It's, it's very, I think that does capture ACT well. Yeah, it sort of cuts through a lot of the um, BS. Yeah, and it's quite different from a lot of those other therapies as well that really focus on changing, you know, how we see ourselves changing, how we think, whereas ACT mm. is very much focused on the direction that we're taking in our life. What are your thoughts on the other therapies? Oh, do we want to go there? Um, <laughs> I, I feel like I'll, I'll keep it very short. I do think I have an appreciation for a lot of different therapies, um, as I think a lot of good therapists do, because working eclectically is what we should do. Mm. Um, I think there um, definitely is concern, particularly in Australia, where some therapies are definitely valued more than others and get more mm. funding and attention than others. Yeah, um, definitely. They don't work for every client mm -hmm. um, and not every, you know, it's the same with 
every therapy doesn't work for every client. People have different needs, circumstances, motivations, different preferences. Um, And I think important part of therapy is really trying to um, make ourselves fit for our clients. Mm. Um, So what are your thoughts on the CBT approach then? I think CBT has gained a wealth of research, um, but I think, um, and CBT is considered in psychology to be the gold standard um, Mm. and a strength that people often like to say about CBT is that it works in 10 sessions. I do believe there is a huge bias within the research though. Typically academics can easily get a lot of funding if their research is going to explore cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, A lot of outcome measures that people will use in their research um, is biased towards CBT. So CBT in itself directly targets changing thoughts and Mm. an outcome measure might look at, you know, how many negative thoughts have changed over the past few weeks? Well, of course, CBT Mm. will fix that, but it doesn't address underlying issues that are perpetuating someone's issue in the first place. And if you look at it from a neurobiological perspective, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of struggles that people come to therapy for such as, you know, critical thoughts that might, they might have low moods, traumas, um, fractured relationships that they're going through, they all come from a lot of emotional experiences that they might have went through, whether that's a trauma that they've been through or a breakup Mm. um, or something or another that's processed within the emotional brain. And CBT very much requires you to think rationally and works with your rational brain. So it works changing your thoughts, but it never really targets the experience that led to critical thinking in the first place. And just an interesting thing I learned recently, Jeffrey Young developed schema therapy, which is an extension of CBT, but with the aims of targeting early memories, used to work with Judith Beck, the creator of CBT, and often said that many clients wouldn't get better from CBT. They would be able to change their critical thinking and they would be able to engage in more, you know, um, pleasant activities and change their behaviours, but they didn't feel any better because CBT can't target emotional experiences. Um, Yet it's interesting that it's still the gold standard today. Mm. Um, And it's interesting that many academics who do research CBT, particularly in Australia, are quite resistant towards embracing different therapies, such as ACT, such as skin therapy, um, such as the third wave therapies we have today. So I do find it quite interesting how for psychology, an industry that's supposed to be quite open, um, many in it can be quite closed towards new approaches. Yeah, I I agree completely. And and there was actually a um, person's post online that I saw today on Reddit where you get all, you know, all all the good stuff on the internet um, where they basically said it was in one of those therapy Reddits and they basically said, oh, look, you know, my therapist has pointed out that my thoughts about you know my past and the things that i'm struggling with they've pointed out that those things aren't helpful or they've pointed out that those things um don't make sense and i'm like yeah i I know they don't make sense so what next um and i I replied to him and i said you know have you looked into act Uh, have you looked into you know, these other approaches where it's not so much where you're trying to, uh, oh, and, and I think the, the therapist has said something like, oh, you can't change the past. 
So you stopped thinking about um, it. So, so the client was just like, yeah, so what am I supposed to do? Just go, that's, that's illogical. Use my rational brain. That's illogical. Therefore, I'm not going to think about it anymore. That does, is not how brains work. Um, if you think about a lot of, um, you know, negative core beliefs that people have, um, for example, you know, feeling like you're worthless, feeling like no mm. one will ever love you, feeling like you're not good enough. Mm. Um, these beliefs come from experiences as young as one years old, as long as you saying as two years old, when mom yeah. would never come to feed you or hug you. Mm. At that age, you would never be able to make sense of the experiences no. from a rational level. So how are you supposed to try and make sense of these thoughts and beliefs yep. from a rational level even now when it comes from such a young age? And uh, remember, not in the context of psychology, but in the context of religious belief, I remember reading something along the lines of um, never, ever try to use logic to convince someone um, not to believe something that they have believed because of emotion, because <laughs> yeah. logic isn't going to untangle that emotional, that emotional kind of mess. Um, and I think the same goes with psychology and therapy. You know, you can't logic your way out of these emotions. And in the same way, it's just, it's the same with all feelings. Like you can't, if you're, say, for example, if it's a summer's day, but mm -hmm. for whatever reason, it's a cool summer's day and you mm -hmm. feel cold. Um, mm -hmm. You can't tell your feelings that, hey, feelings, you, my skin feeling cold, stop feeling cold because it's summer right now and you shouldn't <laughs> feel cold in summer. Does your body yeah. then go, okay, all right, my skin is all of a sudden warmed up because I logically thought about it. Like it's not how it works. Mm. And I think what a lot of people don't know is often you know, the emotions that we have and the really unhelpful thoughts that we have, they serve that purpose to try and help us survive. Mm. Um, that evolutionary purpose, anxiety is the greatest example. We feel anxious because we need that adrenaline rush to try and escape a threat that might be there or to try and fight a threat that might be there. Yeah. We don't want that emotion to ever go away. We just mm. need to learn how to work with that emotion. Yeah, 100%. Well, and it's the same with thoughts as well. We think about the future a lot because there was a time when we were hunters and gatherers where we need to plan ahead for mm. any future threats or dangers. But to this present day, it kind of extends to worrying about how we'll go with an exam or worrying about how we'll go with an interview. It's not helpful yeah. that it was once there to help us survive. Exactly. And, and working with that rather than trying to constantly stamp on these thoughts and say that we don't want them mm. um, is a much better approach. And it's so imperative to survival. It is literally the part of the brain that gets formed first. You know, a mm -hmm. baby, a baby is this um, bunch of little um, big emotions, you know, like it gets, a baby would get, it gets really, really upset when something seems like a threat. You know, a baby doesn't logically think about stuff. A uh, baby mm -hmm. doesn't logically think, you know, I'm a bit cold right now, um, but mum and dad will be back in in a second and they'll probably put a blanket on me because that's what they did the last five nights. No, baby will go, I'm a bit cold right now. Big emotional reaction. Ah, you know, I'm cold. You know, stop this. And, and those emotions protect us. Those emotions act as signals uh, and it's what our brains develop first. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, they're, they're really, really important. And um, uh, uh, the takeaway from the discussion I had with this person on Reddit was basically that, you know, they were saying, yeah, you know, that seems like a much better approach because it's actually feeling my, it's actually sitting with my feelings and actually experiencing my feelings rather than avoiding my feelings, which is what my their current therapist wanted them to do. Um, mm. You know, you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I... I am a little bit in disbelief that a therapist would try to encourage a client to ignore their feelings like that. Mm. Um, you know, it's kind of like try, it's like when we tell someone don't think about a pink elephant mm. and then we're going to think about a pink elephant feelings are the same way. We can't, yeah. uh, we can't switch off our feelings, but acknowledging them and working with them is the best approach. So I'm quite surprised. Yeah. That's but then, in a big way you know that's at the heart of cbt you know you uh, don't you know you bad feel like if you feel sad that's bad you don't want to feel sad so what thoughts are making I think you feel at the sad? heart of cbt is that maladaptive thoughts drive bad feelings mm. and bad feelings need to be changed by changing maladaptive thoughts yeah um so i think it does definitely have that um that aim of wanting to constantly change bad things, mm. you know, have engaged in things that make you feel good and you will feel good. Yeah. Get rid of bad thoughts and you will feel better, but it's not that simple for a lot of people. And I think what's really disheartening is that many therapists come out of university solely trained in CBT. Um, and I know I'm definitely in one that's mm. a little like that. Um, and clients turn away, leave therapy feeling awful and feeling like they're not able to heal because all they were given was cbt and all they were told yeah. was that they need to change x y and z that they yep. struggle to change yeah so exactly just to note out there for anyone listening there are lots of different therapies and i really do encourage you to try and find one that best fits you mm. cbt doesn't work especially if you're a dark wizard and <laughs> you've seen a lot of cbt therapists and that's not worked and you're still got this underlying emotion that's not being processed and that you're trying to control by using power and manipulating people if you're in that situation you know just just chill out and and maybe try a different therapist i wonder how voldemort would go if he was to experience cbt Ooh, what do you reckon okay what's a cbt approach to voldemort um so they would want to identify um his critical thoughts. So if you do a classic ABC approach, you would identify what situation is Voldemort in, what critical thoughts does it trigger and how does it make him feel? And then how does it make him act? So thinking Goblet of Fire where Voldemort um, was there, had murdered Cedric Diggory, wanted to use the Cedric Diggory's body so he could um, get his own body. He transformed, he met Harry and wanted to kill Harry, but luckily Harry, um, got the Triwizard Cup in time and transported him and Cedric Diggory back home safely. And you could just see the rage and wrath that Voldemort was in in that moment. Yeah. Um, so I think that would perhaps be a critical incident that a ther CBT therapist would explore, maybe. Um, How do you think they would explore that one? Oh, I'm trying to think it through in my head. Well, Voldemort would come to therapy saying he feels quite bad and they would explore what's been going on mm. and he would say he couldn't kill harry in that situation so that'd so be the a the activating event yes the activating yep. event voldemort could not kill harry so then they would explore um 
would it, it would be thoughts next, wouldn't it? Um, beliefs so with the B, with the, which same thing, yeah, the beliefs around that. Yeah, so what he was thinking at the time. Mm. What would Voldemort be thinking? I have to kill Harry Potter to get my power because he's, yeah. my, he's the threat. I'm so angry she got away again. Yeah, would Voldemort yeah. be hard on himself? No, because he's that from that victim mentality. So it'd be someone else's fault. He would blame Wormtail. Yeah, for not getting rid of the port key or something. Yes. Yeah. See, I don't even know if Voldemort would have critical thoughts there to work with. So a therapist would be hypothesizing, oh yes, Voldemort's likely being hard on himself and this is making him feel bad. Mm. But then they wouldn't be finding any critical thoughts. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So it'd go from activating event, I couldn't kill Harry Potter and regain my power. Belief, I need to kill Harry Potter because uh, with him around, he's a threat to my power and my control. That's probably what they would challenge is I need mm. to kill Harry Potter. Why do you mm. need to kill Harry Potter? They'd look at the consequence first, wouldn't they? So they'd look at the consequence. Oh, okay, you're really upset today. And then they would look, yeah, then they would start challenging. So what what would the challenges be? I would imagine CBT therapists might explore the thoughts of I need to kill Harry Potter and try to get to the core belief underlying it using What a makes you think you need to kill Harry Potter? Yes. What would it mean if you killed Harry Potter? What would happen mm. if you didn't kill Harry Potter? What does it say about you if you can't kill Harry Potter? Yeah. Um, and that might come to perhaps, oh, wonder what that would actually come to. Voldemort. Voldemort would probably say, you know, what does it mean to, you know, why do you have to kill Harry Potter? I have to kill him for my power. What does it mean for you to get your power? Um, it means everything to me. Um, you don't understand. <laughs> He'd be using anger. He'd be trying to coerce and control. Uh, and then the CBT therapist, they can't really sit with anger. Yes. So, so they'd be challenging. And, um, yeah, what would, what would happen next? I would imagine um, a CBT therapist would try to make Voldemort see that killing Harry Potter isn't something that needs to happen, mm. um, that he doesn't need to kill Harry Potter in order to, you know, be powerful. But when we think about it, Voldemort has a prophecy going on. He needs yeah. to kill Harry Potter. Harry That's Potter right. <laughs> and then a CBT therapist would be saying, well, there's no such thing as a prophecy. That's an irrational thought. Yeah. And they would probably try to tell Voldemort how he's engaging in a self-fulfilling prophecy himself. Yeah. Um, I imagine at that point Voldemort would be becoming quite resistant and be enacting many um, torturous spells onto the poor <laughs> Uh, so yeah it gets to this point doesn't it where um because the therapist isn't willing to sit with emotion uh, and really meet the client where they are um in that moment and there's they're trying to get the client to see things from their perspective that hey this is irrational when well in this case no there was a prophecy and that prophecy was pretty black and white and, and it's the same case for a lot of people that go to therapist that you know it's not it's not irrational for me to feel like crap in this situation like for example with covid it's not irrational for people to feel bad right now bad things are happening so you feel bad like that is your brain 100 working correctly um so trying to find the irrationality in amongst all that it, it is it's a bit fruitless and, and 
it, it, trying to yeah trying to dis- almost it's almost dismissive to go oh no it's you're just feeling validated. this yeah you're just feeling this because you're being irrational like like fuck that <laughs> you know yeah. like fuck yeah. that approach a hundred percent it's very invalidating and i mm. think you know in some lines with when you mentioned covid people with a terminal illness um who will be facing death very soon their thoughts are very rational yeah they're gonna yeah you know you do get a lot of these cases where it it is really understandable when people feel really really bad and the last thing you want is to have a client go to therapy pay money go out of their comfort zone and then feel like they're just getting dismissed feel like you know this isn't a valid reason for me to feel bad because at least in my mind operating under the rules that my mind operates under um yeah, I feel bad for this reason. Yeah, 100%. I agree. Um, and I think there's a really, there's an author, her name's Courtney Armstrong. She wrote a great book. Um, I can't quite remember it, but I do encourage people to search her up and read her work. But she has a lovely quote where she says, you can't think your way to self-compassion. And I think it's it applies to a lot of different things. You can't think your way to logic, really, if you're in such um an emotional state and if it's emotions that are driving really irrational thinking then you can't think your way there and if in this in some cases like people who are experiencing COVID-19 at the moment or people who are um, experiencing a terminal illness or something awful like that then um, you know that the thoughts that they have are really reflective of the reality that they're living in yeah. and we're really not respecting i think a lot of people's reality when we are trying to constantly get them to change their critical thoughts Mm. yeah it's really interesting because i guess uh how it all fits together because there might be people thinking you know how the hell does all this fit together so Mm. you get a situation like this where it's COVID times, people are really, really struggling. So they might see a CBT therapist and feel dismissed or feel like, oh, you know, this person's just telling me to look on the bright side. This person's telling me to challenge my negative thoughts and replace them with positive thoughts. Um, Mm. How would that differentiate from an ACT therapist? Well, an ACT therapist would instead look at your values um, and look at what's helpful and also look at what's um, going to help you to be able to sit with the present moment because Uh. the present moment isn't about being happy. The present moment's about connecting and kind of still heading towards your values. So, Uh. you know, the, so in this case, it would be a case of someone saying, hey, look, you know, really down because of COVID, I've lost my job or I'm worried about my family, that sort of stuff. So an act therapist would say, okay, I can hear you really, really value your family and you really, really valued your job and you're dealing with a lot of discomfort right now because you don't have those in your life anymore. Um, uh-huh. You know, or the the family, obviously you do, but you, you've got this challenge in your life now, this uncomfortable feeling to sit with. Um, and it's not about going, okay, now challenge your thoughts and your irrationality. It's now about, okay, well, how do you sit with this discomfort? Because you're not going to get rid of your values for your family and you're not going to get rid of your values for your job. Um, Those are healthy, helpful things. So the fact that you're feeling terrible right now, 
is okay. It's just a cost of living a life where you have these values. Um, so that's the difference where, you know, you actually will help someone sit with the discomfort rather than trying to go, oh, no, just challenge everything. Uh, everything's irrational and just feel better. And I think ACT is a lot more empowering because it really focuses on what people's choice are. Um, mm. I think, and I think um, regardless of what your situation is, you will always have some degree of choice as to what you decide to do and if it's yeah. going to be in line with your values and if it won't. So even during these really difficult times, you know, people are separated from their families and the people that they love. We can still, with um, for some people, due to technology, we can find ways to connect with our family members and the people mm -hmm. we love and still try to live a life towards our values, even though we have lost so much. That's right. And so there's power to be found there, but at the same time, it's sitting and, and making room for that discomfort. It's not saying, no, no, just stop feeling pain. Stop feeling bad about bad things. Feel good. Um, instead of saying, yeah, yeah, okay. So you're feeling really terrible and that's understandable because these are your values and this is a challenge. So what's going to be helpful in a situation? How can you, uh, in this moment, get the most value um, driven life? You know, how, how can you get your life to reflect your values the most? Um, and like you were giving examples there, well, might not be perfect, but maybe connecting in other ways um, with those people that you care about um, is a really yeah. good example. Yep, definitely. Cool. And I wonder, you know, bringing it back to Voldemort, what it might have looked like if instead of getting um, so caught up in power and the need for control to try to compensate um, for a lot of insecurity that he perhaps felt due to early experiences, if he was able to let that go, accept what happened, accept this pain yeah. and start living life towards his values. That's right. So might have taken. Yeah. So enabling him that um, ability to sit with discomfort, sit with those emotions mm -hmm. without having to act in unhelpful ways. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, there's going to be future therapy sessions with Voldemort. Um, and as the book books continue so so shall the therapy session so we've got him right now he's just met Quirrell and he had a real big blow up at me in the last session about trying to challenge his ideas around um still going after Harry Potter and all the rest um but yeah so the next session I guess it'll be the next part of the book when things don't really work out well for Voldemort in the first book do they no no they don't um, I'd be interested to see more about Voldemort talking about his relationships in therapy, mm. um, how he feels about always having to be the person in control in the relationship, um, having to keep people there by his side using fear um, yeah. and what it would be like if he was to let that go and what it is that he's perhaps wanting from relationships, you know. It's interesting actually when you say that because the only relationships he's actually got uh, like close relationships are with mm -hmm. Nagini the snake. Yes. Which is a horcrux. So it's yeah. basically like himself. <laughs> so, so it's basically the narcissist looking in a mirror. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and that's a relationship he's got with the snake. And then, yeah. And then with like, it seems like all the other connections he has are with horcruxes. Yeah. yeah. He uses fear to keep the Death Eaters by his side. Um, mm. 
is this fear to control everyone else. Um, and, you know, I, you can really see why he wants to maintain power then because if he loses that power, then people won't be scared of him anymore and then they can leave. Right. So you're talking more about those relationships, which are super really unhealthy relationships. And I'm thinking yes. more so those more personal, close relationships. Oh. Um, so you're like yeah. with his four cruxes. Yeah. And with Nagini, the snake, and that sort of stuff. So he's got to cut like the, the only close relationships, the only thing he trusts to be close to him is himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everything else he keeps at arm's length with his power. Um, Interesting character. It is. And something interesting to explore down the track as well is the parallels between, I think, Harry and Voldemort and something JK herself has spoken about, you know, both of them having um, family, you know, not having parents in their lives, both being orphans, both growing up in very difficult circumstances Harry was bullied a lot by his aunt and uncle and cousin he was made to feel unloved and yet he became a very different person why do you think that is oh why do I think that is I think that's the big question that psychologists are always investigating what are these individual differences do you know what I think it is Mm -hmm. that the point in Harry's life where he finally gets power, he also gets relationships that are healthy. Mm. Whereas Voldemort was different. Voldemort had power before any healthy relationships. Did Voldemort give himself a chance to have healthy relationships though? Well, it doesn't get into it in the books, but you never ever see anything about any, yeah, any healthy relationships he has. Um, like there's no like he's chucked into Slytherin so you know imagine so yeah imagine if Harry Potter had been chucked into Slytherin and mm. there's no healthy relationships like um, like Ron and Hermione and instead all he has is yeah the relationships like Malfoy who again reiterates that muggles are all dirt um, you know what, though? Mm. I feel like Harry wouldn't have been too different. I think. You because even, Yeah, because even though Voldemort was bullied a lot at the orphanage and it kind of, when Voldemort was bullied, it really pushed him more towards the dark side. It mm. pushed him more towards wanting to grab power so he's no longer the one being bullied, but he becomes the bully. Because mm. Harry's being bullied a lot by his cousin, Dudley, um, but I feel like you, we got snippets where you could see that, you know, even though Harry was being bullied, he never really. Um, what? Okay. So what would have had to have happened to turn Harry Potter into Voldemort? Because I reckon situation and lack of support and victimization, I reckon it could have happened. Um, you reckon it could have happened? I reckon it could happen. Oh. I don't know. That, that is one to think about, though. I feel like Harry has a lot of, um, he's got genes from his parents, so he's got a, a positive genetic predisposition there towards not turning out like Voldemort. Yeah, I also feel like Harry just seems like the type to, to you know, is, for example, um, you see there's a lot of cases where um, children grow up in a domestic violence household. They might watch their father beat up their mum and there are some kids that grow up to 
become abusers themselves and might mm. even abuse their mother. And there are some kids that grow up to be the total opposite, to yeah. be very self-conscious of how they behave and very protective towards their mother. Um, so there's some sort oh. of thing that makes that different. And I feel like Harry was, you know, from the bullying he experienced with Dudley is more likely to be the one to look out for others who are being bullied. Because you could mm. see when Malfoy offered friend Harry his friendship, he refused. Because as soon as he saw what Malfoy was like and how he bullied other people, Harry didn't like it. Whereas I felt like if Voldemort was in that position, Voldemort would be attracted towards Malfoy. You know what you're talking about there then is that the differentiating factor is that Harry already had some resilience. Mm. So Maybe, Maybe it's resilience. So when it came to getting bullied, Harry Potter was resilient in the face of the bullying. And whereas um, Voldemort was like, you know, no, I, I can't have this. You know, this is too painful. I have to act. I have to shut this down. I have to do something. You um, had to take control. Yeah. Whereas Harry Potter was like, Harry Potter was very apt about it. <laughs> he he would never compromised his values in the moment to get rid of the emotion. Instead, he sat with the emotion, even though it was the same emotions that Voldemort felt, um, sat with those, and yeah, he, he yeah, it's interesting. Mm, it really is. He had that resilience, and I would say even courage that mm. got him sorted into Gryffindor to be able to do that. Yeah, and I think um, courage is often what's needed when it comes to living a life towards our values as well. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to um, use maladaptive coping strategies to try to get rid of uncomfortable feelings like by drinking too much or smoking too much or um, yelling at your people around you or you know, self-sabotaging relationships. It's, it's a lot easier to kind of do that and it's a lot more courage to actually face emotions and sit with emotions, um, especially the unpopular ones. Yes. Cool. Well, look, it was great talking to you today, Lydia. Thank you for all your insight. Um, and You're welcome. This was fun. <laughs> cool. And um, yes, it's maybe people will be a little bit, um, yeah, reminiscent and, and wanting those ten-minute um, episodes again after doing <laughs> this one, which I don't know how long we've talked for, but it's definitely more than the the normal length of the uh, episodes, but uh, I enjoyed it at least. So I, I appreciate you, you chatting. Yeah, it was great. Okay. Right. Take right. care. Everyone. Catch you later. See ya. Bye. there we're nerds amalgamated your nerd pop culture podcast uh, i'm buck with me i have the professor Hello. um the professor is our gaming software engineering nerd who brings the stories on all that sort of stuff we also have the dj hey guys and the dj brings us stuff on entertainment and anime I bring science and tech. So, yeah, I'll hear from you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.